You're listening to the First Baptist Church Broken Arrow podcast. To learn more about the church, visit us at fbcba.org. Today's sermon comes from our pastor, Dr. Matt Brooks. Oh, Father, we come to you today, and Lord, we pray. Thank you for this opportunity that we have to be your people, to study your scriptures, to sing songs of truth. God, we thank you that in a world that is ever-changing, that, Father, the word says you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Father, we humbly come before you, and we confess today that we need you in all facets of our lives. That, God, life with you is not hard. It is impossible without the power of the Holy Spirit. So, Holy Spirit, come right now. Amplify your text. Anoint me as I love and serve your people. In the name of Christ, we pray and ask these things. And all God's people said, amen. Well, good morning, church. If you would, please open your Bibles with me, the book of Acts this morning, Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10. My name is Matt Brooks. I'm the senior pastor here of First Baptist Church of Broken Arrow. And we are excitingly walking through a new series that we started last week called Unstoppable, Advancing the Gospel One Opportunity at a Time. And we are walking through Acts chapters 10 through 12. I want to remind you that our content team, our creative team has put together a devotional that walks right alongside this sermon you're about to hear. If you're interested in that this week, as you continue to follow Jesus, text the word sermon to 45776. There are just some things that don't belong together on the surface. I mean, regardless of how awesome and incredible they are, independent of one another, together it just doesn't make sense that they would be together. You ever notice that in your life? I mean, for instance, take ice cream and bacon. I mean, two incredible things in and of themselves. Put them together, I don't know, I'm kind of intrigued by that. I don't know, we'll see, right? But they just don't appear to go together on the surface. Uh, how about our shoppers out there, okay? You've got your credit card or debit card, and you've got a zero-based budget. Some of those things, ugh, yikes, they don't appear to go together. Uh, what about during the holiday season, during Thanksgiving time? Does a Thanksgiving meal and tight jeans go together? No, probably not. But in the meantime, does Mexican food and tight jeans go together? No, probably not. There's just some things on the surface that you would think these never go together. But there's also some things that though they appear on the outside to never go together, once they're together, it was like they were made for each other. There is nothing better. Some of you are here and say, Pastor, you just described my marriage. Or, Pastor, you just described my job or my hobbies or things that I do with my life. That is a wonderful introduction to one of the greatest inventions of all time, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. Do you know how this wonderful invention was made? Reese's Peanut Butter Cups were invented by a man by the name of H.B. Reese, who was born on a Pennsylvania farm on May the 24th, 1879. Now around 1900, H.B. was married and him and his wife would go on to have 16 children. This man needed a lot of peanut butter and chocolate in his life. Trust me, okay? So in 1917, he was struggling to provide for his family. He was struggling to meet the needs of all of these growing responsibilities. And so he was born on a farm. He took these gifts and talents that he used. And he was hired by a man by the name of Milton Hershey to run his dairy farm. The same Hershey who owned the Hershey Corporation where we get Hershey bars. And he worked his tail off. And he was good at what he did. 
He began to develop the farm and expand like never before. In the early 1920s, Mr. Hershey began to entrust H.B. Reese with a product design, specifically with product development, of taking fresh ingredients and mixing them with chocolate. And so he tried with raisins and it went to mixed reviews and he went to dates. And could you imagine a Reese's peanut butter chocolate date? What a disaster, right? And a depression came. Our economy crumbled. And advertisers and marketers were looking for ways to market a product that would provide sustenance to a family. And peanut butter began to explode all throughout the country. And so in really a contentious debate, H.B. Reese and his associates began to mix chocolate with peanut butter. They could never go together. This could never be so. Oh, yes, it could. And in 1928, H.B. Reese marketed for the very first time his penny cups. Can you believe that he sold these for one cent a piece to distributors all throughout the Eastern Coast? And now, years later, Reese's peanut butter cup is one of the most famous, most popular candies in the entire world. 15.9 Americans confess to having at least five of these a year. The other 315 million Americans are lying about that, right? (laughs) I have about five of these a week. I don't know about you. The average revenue for Reese's Peanut Butter Cup last year, even in this economy, $43 million. What appeared to be so different on the outside. They could never go together. Actually worked wonderfully together. Does anyone like Reese's peanut butter cups? Yeah, Miss Terry. There you go. Enjoy. You can get that after the service. That is exactly the point that I want you to get when we come to Acts chapter 10 this morning. That when we come to Acts chapter 10, it is one of the most important chapters, not just in the New Testament, but in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10 is a major turning point. In all of history, nothing is ever the same after Acts chapter 10. The church is going to expand its missional outreach. It's going to expand and broaden its geographical and sociological stroke. Barriers will be crossed. Fences will be mended. And from henceforth, God is going to be at work through two kinds of people. Not just the disciples, Jews, but Gentiles. From all moving forward, Acts chapter 10, Jesus is Lord of all, and the gospel must go to all, will be the crying modus operandi of the Lord's church. Tragically, for centuries, it wasn't so with God's people. In fact, Jews and Gentiles have been at odds for over 1,500 years. In fact, even at the time of the book of Acts, did you realize that milk drawn by a Gentile's hands could never be consumed by a Jew? Cooking utensils brought from a Gentile had to be purified by water and fire by any Jew before they were used in their home. A Jew would have never allowed a Gentile to eat alone in their home. Why? Because the entire meal would have been deemed unclean. In fact, any Jew traveling throughout Gentile country, before they ever entered their homeland, had to physically dust the sand off their sandals. It's interesting, Jesus speaks to this culturally in Matthew chapter 10, verse 14, after he sends the 12 apostles out. 
And he sends them into the countryside and he gives them specific responsibilities. And he uses this imagery spiritually. He says, for anyone who doesn't receive my message, dust your sandals off, move on. He uses a contemporary illustration for a spiritual application. Secondly, Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 16, talking about how he is the good shepherd, has always been preparing his disciples that the gospel was not just for Jews only, but it was for all who would call upon the name of the Lord. Jesus tells his followers in John 16, and I have sheep of another herd, and I must bring them also into me, for they will listen, for they will be one flock, and I will be their one shepherd. He's talking about you in John 10. He's talking about me. And it has taken us to Acts chapter 10 to get to this point. And that's the exact point that I want to make from this text today to you. That though God is going to move mightily from a Gentile who is seeking him by the name of Cornelius, we'll get to him in a minute. Though God moved obediently to a Christ follower, a disciple, a Jew by the name of Peter, these two men would set this catalyst for the church. The spirit through them, nothing would ever be the same. The same spirit reigns in us, guides us, and is leading us to engage those around us with the gospel. The centurion story is the longest in the book of Acts. And Luke wastes no time in Acts chapter 10 describing Peter's ministry to Gentiles. He does so by introducing to us a man by the name of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. Look at it. For at Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, one who was known throughout the Italian court. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, and he gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God, and about the ninth hour of the day he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who came in and said to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now I want you to send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. For he is lodging there with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. And then the angel spoke to him, departed, and he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those attended him, and having related everything to them, immediately he sent them to Joppa. It takes two. Cornelius is introduced to us. He is not currently in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 8, a Christ follower. He's what we call a God-fearer. He is a Greek-speaking Gentile who has converted to Judaism. He has given his life to the rituals and customs of the Mosaic law. He is residing in Caesarea, which was a Roman military municipality. It was a commercial power. It was a place where commerce and trade would come and go. And overwhelmingly had not a Jewish population, but a Gentile population. Cornelius was also a Roman citizen. He was not a man of covenant. He was not a man of history, though he was a man of tradition. He was also a centurion an elite guard and commander of approximately 100 men in the Roman army. Historians tell us that centurions were the backbone of the Roman army. They were by nature good leaders. They were steady and prudent in their personalities. And additionally, 
they made five times more than any other Roman soldier. So more than likely, Cornelius is not just a man of influence, a man of authority, a man of nobility in a sense. He is also a man of means as a centurion. Now here's the interesting thing. Centurions throughout the New Testament almost always have a positive reputation. In fact, I'll remind you in Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, Jesus' first engagement with a Gentile was a centurion. It was a man who had a friend who was sick. And he heard of the miraculous healing of Jesus. And he sent this man to go find Christ. And in finding Christ, Christ found the centurion. And the centurion began to dialogue with Jesus and began to tell him that he was a, a man of means and a man of authority, that soldiers would take his orders and go here and they would go. And he would order one thing and they would do. And even his own servants would follow his instructions. And Jesus has this line in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, if all of Israel had such faith, that if my people would follow my influence, would take in my wisdom, the world would never be the same. That's what's going on in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius. That's who this man is. Luke tells us in verse 2, he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people. He prayed continually to God. But he was not a Christ follower. Cornelius was a good man, but he was not a God man. Even though he was monotheistic, he refused to believe in the God and goddesses of Rome, he was not a committed follower to the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though he was genuinely seeking fidelity and guidance and loyalty to Yahweh in his life, he had not surrendered his life completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. Cornelius had given his life to adherence to customs and traditions. He was a man who was disciplined to those things. He was devoted to those things. He was generous with what God had blessed him with. He was even praying to the Lord, yet he was doing so in his own power. He had not surrendered over completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. And can I tell you that there's nothing more frustrating, more dreadful than having the knowledge of God without the wisdom, presence, and power of God in your life? All of this time, Cornelius had been genuinely seeking God, and he's about to find out that it's God who was seeking him. You see, God always finds someone who genuinely desires to seek and find him. Remember what God said to the prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament? You will seek me and find me when you seek with me with your whole heart. If you're here this morning and you're genuinely desiring to know God, he has made himself known. You're genuinely desiring to seek God. You will find that he is earnestly seeking a relationship with you. And in doing so, we don't find Jesus. Jesus finds us. God is never lost. We are. And it's within the beauty of the gospel that though we are lost, we are found. It is within this responsibility of you and I sharing this gospel that those that God has placed around us, that 
appear to be moral, appear to be genuinely seeking God's guidance and favor, that they will find the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel in and around us. Cornelius was seeking to find God. And God commands Cornelius to find Peter. Do you see this beautiful connection? It takes two. It takes the responsibility of us receiving the Spirit and then enabling and allowing this Spirit to work mightily in and through us. So Cornelius is praying at 3 p.m., the Bible says. And he's divinely interrupted in verse 3 by an angel. Now, angels play a vital role in furthering God's purposes in the book of Acts. Cornelius is stunned. He's caught off guard. This man is a seasoned soldier. His tremendous responsibility. He's seen battle after battle, engagement after engagement, but he's never seen this. Nothing would prepare Cornelius for God's messenger. Look at verse four. And he stared at him in terror. And he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Amazing. The angel tells a fearful Cornelius that his prayers, are you ready for this? Have not only been heard by God, they've been received by God. As Old Testament sacrificial language is used in verse four. Additionally, the angel tells Cornelius to move. If you are genuinely seeking God, in what you find, you must move toward God. And I want you to send messengers to Joppa. And I want you to find a man by the name of Peter who is lodging in a specific address with a specific person. A man by the name of Simon who is by the seaside. Now, here's something interesting. Why wouldn't the angel just share the gospel with Cornelius right here? I mean, honestly, it would have saved us a lot of real estate in the book of Acts. We could go straight from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 11. Why did this angel not just share the gospel? Cornelius is already attentive. He's already stunned by this vision. Why not share the good news? You want to know why? Because angels are angelic beings created by God as his emissaries. They are divine messengers. But they have not been divinely commissioned to share the gospel. No, God saves that commission for us. It is us as God's people who are to share this good news. We are his chosen messengers for this good news, not his angels. God has always entrusted, even from the book of Genesis, his truth with his people. That though God has a divine plan to rescue and redeem all nations, all ethnic groups for his glory, the method in which God entrusts is always people. Always. Remember what Jesus says in John 17, 17? Sanctify, set them apart with truth. Thy word is truth. No, this is something that God has reserved for us. Secondly, though, the essence of faith is obedience. And so from the beginning of his faith, God is teaching Cornelius of the priority of listening and obeying the Lord. You have for decades, Cornelius, taken orders from a superior. Now you are to follow the king. And you are to listen to the king of the universe. And whatever it is he tells you, 
And whatever abnormal this vision may be, and whatever crazy it is for you to leave Caesarea, your home, to go to Joppa, do it. Because it takes two. It is not just you and your flesh, Cornelius. It is you and King Jesus. And his spirit will reign in and through you. And notice what Cornelius does in verse 8. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Cornelius instantly obeys and sets the stage for one of the most incredible conversions in the entire New Testament. A vision from the Lord to Peter in verses 9 through 16. Look at verse 9. And then the next day. Some of us, we don't think God's moving. We don't think God's active in our lives. We don't think God is hearing and receiving our prayers. Look at the Lord's doing. 30 miles from Caesarea is Joppa. God comes to Cornelius, tells him to move, tells him to obey, tells him there will be one who receives you. The next day, God comes to Peter. And as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Cornelius' men are heading to Joppa. And God appears to Peter in a heavenly vision while he is praying. Don't miss this. God did not give Peter this in reading his word. God did not give Peter this vision while he was casually on a walk or fellowshipping with other believers, people in the region. No, God gave Peter this because he was praying and fellowshipping with God. What is God communicating to you when you pray? What is God telling you when you talk to him? You say, well, wait a minute, how do I know? How do I know for sure? That's why I always encourage you as your pastor to, to pray with your Bible open, to start from his word. And when you read God's word, it is God speaking to you. But then pray to him. That is you speaking to God. You see, there was a recent Pew Research poll. 2023, studying the effects of the pandemic and all of these other things. You know what they found? That only 50% of all Christ followers in America confess to praying weekly. It means one in two of us this morning, you're You're only genuinely talking to God about what is going on in your heart and what is going on in your life and what you're going through and your calendars and decisions and relationships and all these things once a week. Can I tell you that's not enough? Can I tell you that God desires to know you and to love you? He wants to talk to you. So what is he saying? You see, the word of God enlightens us And prayers to God enables us. I find in my life, if I'm prayerless, it's because I'm often prideful, sinful. J.C. Ryle, the great theologian, said it well when he says, prayerlessness leads to Christless, godless destruction. It leads in a direction from God. May you be intentional about engaging the Lord, about listening, receiving, and then responding to what he has for you. Peter is praying at noon. 
It was customary in this time that Jews would eat a light meal in the mid-morning. They would then meet a heavier meal later in the afternoon. In between times, right at noon, they would pray. And it is while Peter is praying that he falls into this trance, this sense where all of his other senses were suspended. And amazingly, he sees this vision in verses 10 through 12. He, he sees this large sail, this object descending with all kinds of animals throughout the entire world, reptiles and birds and all other sorts of things. And in the middle of this vision, he hears a command, verse 13. And there came a voice to Peter, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now, I don't know about you, but remarkably, I hear this same voice every time I go to a barbecue place. Every time, you know? Uh, I was hanging out with a couple of our staff members at Oak Heart in Midtown Tulsa, one of the best barbecue places in Tulsa this week. And, you know, Oak Heart's one of those places that you kind of smell it from the parking lot, so you know it's good. And you get in there, and they have their menus on these kind of barbecue placemats that they put on the wall. And you order things at Oak Heart by the pound. And so I kind of got there and said, you know, I'd kind of just like half this wall, if you would, my good man. I want to eat it all. It's good. It's great. That's what this command is to Peter. Peter, you're seeing all of these different animals. You're seeing all of these different things in a vision. Eat it. Seize. Move. What does it mean? Peter sees this animal-sized vision. He has a voice that commands him to action. But Peter is resilient in his, his commitment to tradition. He still is a faithful Jew eating kosher. He's in alignment with the Jewish dietary laws. And perhaps even as a test of loyalty, he rebuffs this first command in verse 14. Three separate times in verses 14 through 16. He says no, until he finally gets it in verse 16. You know, Jesus changes everything. And this is why we need Jesus. Because more often than not, we just keep doing the same things over and over again. You see, Peter struggled with denying the Lord three times throughout his journey with Christ, did he not? Remember in the book of Matthew where Jesus tells his disciples that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will flee? And Peter stands in front of the disciples and says, Not me. I'll never do that, Lord. Jesus tells him, Peter, you will not only deny me once, but twice, but how many times? Three times tonight before the rooster crows. Peter actually remembers this moment in Matthew 26, verse 75. After the resurrection, the risen Christ appears to Peter, who's broken, who's absolutely just in a sterile state as a result of his disobedience. And Christ pursues him, woos him, and comes to him in John chapter 21 and tells him, not once, not twice, but three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? In John 21, verse 17, here it is, Peter, once again, the Lord is commanding him to do something. No, Lord. No, Lord. I'm of the tradition. I'm of the dietary laws. And he completely misses the point of this vision. You see, this physical vision had a spiritual application. This was not about food. This was not about animals. But rather, this was about people. Look at verse 15. And the voice came to him again a second time saying, what God has made clean, do not call common. 
You see, God was patient with Peter because he knows and loves Peter. Just like God is patient with us because he knows and loves us. And because Jesus has truly changed everything. This is not about Peter's diet. This is about Peter's heart. That God has abolished, removed all the restrictions of the dietary laws in the Old Testament through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the intention of these restrictions was always to set God's people apart. Was always to preserve their health, to allow them to thrive in following the Lord. In fact, if you need help expediting your nap after lunch today, read Leviticus 11, verses 2 through 43, and you will see how copious God is in defining clean and unclean things to his people. But what was the point of all of these things? It wasn't so they could just say no to certain social things, but it was so they could say yes to God. Remember what Jesus says in Matthew 15, verse 11? It is not what comes in the mouth that defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth. The Lord is teaching Peter a very important lesson here. The Lord is teaching Peter that God is orchestrating a new thing. That his gospel will be available to all. Not just those of covenant. Not just those who follow the traditions. But to any who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. What previously they said was unclean can be by faith declared clean through the Lord Jesus Christ. God makes everything clean through Jesus. By faith, Christ is in us and we are in him. And so through Christ, God removes our sin, removes our impurities and gives us himself. And thus consequently, he brings us into his family. And what was once unclean is now clean through the action of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is in the midst of sending men to Peter. And he tells them in verses 17 and 19, as Peter's pondering this vision, to get ready. And the Spirit prompts Peter to action. He is no longer to think. He is to respond into what God has asked him to do. You see, God not only provides the message, he prepares the messenger. I can't help but this same God is doing something similar in your life. And so do many of us miss it because we think, which is essential, but overthinking can be detrimental. We are by essence of who we are, people of faith. And when the spirit prompts, we are to respond. When God moves, we're to get moving. We're to ask for wisdom, we're to seek his counsel, we're to get borrowed perceptions from others who know us and know the Lord, and then we are to take action. Our goal is a direction, not perfection. Goal towards obedience in what it is the Lord has asked us to do. We have his word, we have his son, we have his presence through the spirit. We must take action. 
even to things that are not familiar to us, even with people who are not like us. And look what Peter does in verse 23. So he invites them to be his guest. Peter obediently applies the gospel. He invites these men into Simon's home. And the church has never been the same since. You see, it is often the smallest step of faith in your life that becomes the biggest reason for life change through your life. So what is it that God is asking you to do? It takes two. Ask for his spirit. Pray for obedience and move. Secondly, who is it that's like Cornelius? They're genuinely seeking the Lord. And God has placed them around you. Who is it this week that you can show grace to? Who is it this week that you can begin to commune and to fellowship with, to continue to make a difference in their life? Who is it this week that in the opportunity that God has asked you to be faithful to, that you can ask his spirit to grant you favor and power and his presence as you take one gospel opportunity at a time. As we respond to what the Lord has for us today, may we pray to God and remind us it takes to his spirit through us. Would you pray? Bow your head and pray right now. Our Father, we ask these things by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we ask your power to fall upon us. God, we pray as you've moved mightily through the faith of your people, that God, you would move right now. That God, as you took two individuals who on the surface, they had nothing in common, 1,500 years of history of indifference, but yet you will bring them together. Yet you will use this foundation to set the way for your church. God, I pray right now that your spirit would fall upon your people. That with every head bowed, with every eye closed, if there's someone here that desires a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would surrender their life to Christ. You may be like Cornelius. You're doing a lot of good things, but they're not God things. You may, dis you may be disciplined, devoted, generous, even prayerful, but you have not surrendered completely to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. May you do so today that you receive his gospel. If you are encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe to hear other messages. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us online at fbcba.org. Thanks for listening to our podcast and always remember, you are loved.